Be seated. And thank you guys for leading this morning. We had one more person that was supposed to be helping us lead this morning, and food poisoning struck their home, so uh, maybe shoot water a message if you think about it and tell him you missed seeing him up here this morning. Um, man, today is always one of those days, like Easter Sunday for me. I think there's, um, there's so many pastors out there that just conditioned as a result of church culture freak out about today. Like they do, they freak out about today, trying to figure out how to package this, how to, how to do it in a new way. But for me, like, I'm not saying I'm more mature than them. I feel like it's, it's hopefully a lesson that God's taught me. Like, this is one of the least stressful days of the year for me as a pastor because I feel like there's, there's a story we have to tell today, and there's no way around it. Like, there's no way to get around the fact that on this day, uh, we speak well uh, and we speak clearly about the resurrection uh, because it's a crazy story. Like, if we think about it in the scope of history, what we are talking about today and what is represented by this day in history, like, if if there's a story worth telling in all of eternity, in all of creation, in all of humankind, like, this is it. Because it defies logic, it defies nature, it defies every sense of reasonableness that we might have, and that's the reason that it's so amazing, because it's completely true, it's completely valid, and, and even, like, it's even hard to wiggle around it from a historicity point of view, like, it happened. And so today, uh, we want to celebrate the beauty that rests uh, in this story. A couple things that I will point out, we're, we're going to be in Luke chapter 24, um, and I know a lot of people this week have been reading along with us kind of the, the events that led up to today, the, the Passion Week as we call it, and, and everything that transpired and occurred. And if you read from there through the resurrection, it can get a bit confusing um, because it, it feels like there's just several different things going on because there are. Like when we're reading about the resurrection details in the latter part of all four of the Gospels, uh, we have to understand that there's seven to nine appearances of Jesus. And so while we're reading, we think we're reading all about what occurred in one day, like on the Sabbath, but Jesus was around for about 40 days after the resurrection. Not about, but he was around for 40 days after the resurrection and appeared to the disciples seven to nine different times. And he appeared in different ways. And, and even John says that there were more things than this that occurred, but they couldn't be contained in one book if we wrote about them all. But what we do have is we have the places in which he appeared uh, to several disciples, uh, general disciples, but also the specific disciples, meaning the 500 to 1,000 that were following at the time, plus uh, the 11 that were remaining, including the one that would become the new 12th, which was Matthias. And so today, we want to read from Luke chapter 24, um, and we're just going to read, man, the resurrection account. And, and here's what I want us to do um, after that. And it's kind of something that we do with, with most passages that we read. We ask, what do we do with this? Like, what do we do with this? Today we want to celebrate Jesus. We want to think about what it means to us. But we also want to think just that, that simply. Like, what, what do we do with this story? Uh, so let's pray together and we'll read. God, we love you. Uh, we thank you today for Jesus. We thank you that this story... Uh, should shock us. It should be strange. It should be odd. Uh, and God, we should be able to say, yes, we believe, but God, it's crazy. Thank you, God, for doing the unthinkable. Thank you, God, for doing the impossible. Thank you, God, for making a way where there was not a way. And God, thank you for Jesus. As we read your word today, Father, I pray that it speaks and it's faithful to do what you've uh, intended it to do, to make us look more and more like your son and into the church you desire us to be. We love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So starting in Luke chapter 24, verse 1, 
says, But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. It's not a word we use a whole lot, but I, I do like it. And as they were frightened and they bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, My favorite line, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Like I think one of the best tools that we can we can use when reading scripture, especially when it involves multiple people and multiple points of view is we can try our very best to place ourselves in their shoes, Uh, try to feel what they were feeling, try to see what they were seeing, try to think what they were thinking. And and in this case, we have a few people. Uh, We have the women, Mary Magdalene, another Mary, and some other moms of of some very faithful followers of Jesus. They went to serve Jesus at the tomb because they they were yet to understand exactly what had transpired. And then we have the remaining 11 disciples amongst probably another 500 or so. They had been following Jesus closely, hanging on every word, watching every miracle, listening to every authoritative teaching, seeing him confront the religiosity of the day, seeing him do all of these things, and even hearing him verbatim say, I'm going to be turned over into the hands of angry men. They're going to kill me, and on the third day I will rise. He said it exactly like that on at least two to three occasions. But yet, when the crucifixion occurred, it was such chaos, the world was shaken to its core, literally dead rose from their graves, walking around the city. The world had never seen perfect die, and and because of that, creation was rattled. And included in that creation was every person that followed, watched, and witnessed Jesus. And so, it was chaos. They knew not what to think. They They knew not what to feel. They knew not what to do. But these women just knew Jesus had been teaching. Jesus had been serving. Jesus had been modeling like we talked about last week. And their appropriate response was we will serve him one more time by going and taking care of his body. And then they get there. Then they get there, and on their way, Matthew tells us that there was a great earthquake, and actually what it was was an angel rolling this huge rock away from the tomb. They get there, and there's no Jesus. There's a clause that he was wrapped in, and there were two dazzling figures, angels. And they look at them, and in a couple of accounts, we can find these accounts in in all the synoptics, and it just says, you're looking for the living among the dead. He's not here. He's risen. Now, if we're being like good students of Scripture and we're trying to place ourselves in their place, like right now in their shoes or their sandals, like you have to imagine just for a moment, they're like, what? Now, we, 2,000 years removed with lots of Scripture at hand, lots of teaching that we've heard, countless books written on the material, countless sermons that you may have heard. Like for us, we hear that and we're like, yeah, 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 Jesus is risen. But for them to hear that from two like shining characters, 
I mean, they had to just be shocked beyond belief, rocked to their core, just like the earth was days before. Imagine their bewilderment. Imagine their response. Imagine their thought processes. Because I'll, I'll, I'll give it away, and even one of the points, like, when we read this story, when we think well about this story, when we take all of these things into account, like somewhere in me, it should shake the living mess out of me. We should not grow numb to the fact that Jesus not only bore the sin of all of mankind, that includes you and me, hung on the cross until the price was paid. And then, not only that, not only did he pay the price, but he also paid the effect and he conquered death. Like that story should not sound normal. It should not be mundane. It should not just make perfect sense because it does not. Because what would make perfect sense in the grand scheme of all of these things is that I would be held accountable for my sins to the point that no one should be able to die in my place, cause and effect, cost and penalty, crime and punishment. That makes perfect sense to our society. And if we're thinking well about all of the things that transpired, what would make perfect sense is that I die for my sins, that you die for yours. And sins being all of those things that are counter to the method, uh, the, the righteousness and the model that God has set forth in his heart and in his view of love and justice. Like all of those ways that tr- we transgress, we should be held accountable. And the purchase and, and the penalty of that is death. Like what would make sense, crime and punishment, is that I'm held accountable for this. But again, this story is not normal, not mundane, not man-made, not humanly equated in our terms These are God's terms. These are God-sized love things. And so these women, they go and they look at a God-sized phenomenon of Jesus, this great teacher, this great prophet that they had seen, this great God with skin on that they had yet to realize was truly him. He wasn't there. He was gone. And so what do they do? They're shocked. They're shocked. But then they remembered. They remembered his words. They remembered his words in Mark 9 and Matthew 17 in which he said, I will be handed over. I will be killed. But on the third day I'll rise. In the moment when he said it, they were just like, okay, I have no idea what you mean, but thanks for speaking. But in this moment, they were like, oh, it all makes sense. It all makes sense. And then they were told to do something by the two dazzling characters, the two angels. They said, go and tell. Go and tell the disciples. Go and tell. So they did. And it says, now it it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, this is verse 10, and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Not only did these women who had been following Jesus closely, serving Jesus, it said that there were multiple women that served Jesus at every turn, These disciples that had been close with him heard all of his words that he intended, had been invested, released, equipped, taught some more, released some more, equipped some more, empowered some more. When they heard that Jesus had risen, they were just like, that's crazy. That's crazy talk. We can't dismiss the immediate response of the disciples because if we do, we overlook the fact that, man, this is insane. That it is. It is crazy. It is other than. It should not make sense. It should not just easily be a believable story. 
But it is true. It is valid. And it's life-giving. And so the disciples, they said, we, we don't believe you. And so Peter, he jumped up. And Peter was known for running because that's what he did. He didn't think. A lot of times he just acted. A lot of times he just spoke. Peter ran to sea. We've seen him jump out of boats and almost drowned. We've seen him put on his clothes to try to take a dreadful swim. We've seen him do all kinds of things, even cut off someone's ear. That's Peter. He said, I don't believe you, but I'll go see for myself. I think that's another natural response too. The other natural response is, this is a crazy thing that you're telling me, but I want to see for myself. I think growing up, it was, it was never appreciatively said that it's okay to be a healthy skeptic. Peter was. In this moment, he was a healthy skeptic. He said, I don't believe you, but I'm going to go look for myself. See, an unhealthy skeptic is someone that says, I don't believe you, and they're not willing to do the work to find out. But a healthy skeptic, on the other hand, says, I don't believe you, but I will do what's necessary to see if you're telling the truth. Peter, in this moment, was a healthy skeptic. If you're sitting here this morning, I don't know a lot of you that are here today. I've never seen your faces. You may be a healthy skeptic. You may say, I don't necessarily believe my friends or my family. I don't necessarily believe the church, but you're doing the work to see if you do. Today, let me be the one to tell you, as crazy as this sounds, even to the people that were there, it's entirely true. It's entirely real. And it's entirely necessary. So the question remains, what, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? One of my mentors, uh, a man who is a, a faithful father, a faithful husband, has been a faithful pastor for years and a faithful mentor to me, one of his favorite phrases is, Jesus be treasured. While this may sound simple, and it may sound a little, a little trite even, and I think the first thing with this is that we remember that Jesus must be treasured. Like, he must be treasured by us. Like, those of us who are calling on him as Lord, trusting our sin to him to take care of so that we can know God, be known by God, like, Jesus must be treasured because again if we look at the entirety of Jesus's story I mean from the very beginning it's insane like it really is it is crazy you'll hear me say it a lot like it's crazy like to be born of a virgin Mary to leave a place to where they were singing the trihagian to him every day holy 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 is the Lord to leave that to be born amongst hay to be born amongst farm animals with no one singing to you oh except the angels that come down from the sky and sing to you but no earthly people to have shepherds rallying around you like that is nuts that doesn't make sense and then to grow up without blemish, without flaw, to live a perfect life. And when I say perfect, that's not metaphor. That's not allegory. It is truth without error, just as he was a perfect life. And then to willingly, through obedience and love, march to the cross on my behalf. That is insane. To say that it's crazy is not even doing the thought of this justice. It does not make sense. But yet he did it because of love for who he was and love for those who would know him. He died in our place. And again, according to like the way that we make things add up or equal each other, our crime and punishment view, our cause and effect view, shouldn't make sense shouldn't work. But again, God's economy, 
completely different from ours, completely other than from ours. And then not only did he die in our stead, die in our place, even while we were yet still sinners, he conquered death. He rose on on the third day like he walked out of the tomb. And I've said it a lot, like he kicked death in the teeth. Somebody even quoted that on Instagram this week. I'm like, yay, people are listening. They're not tuning me out after five minutes and 12 tears. They, they hear me. Jesus must be treasured. For all of these reasons, he must be treasured. Because again, he wasn't just good. He wasn't just wise. He, he wasn't just a shining example as to how we should live. No, he was perfect. And he died in my place, in your place, if we just believe. Jesus must be treasured. And I think through that, because of Jesus being treasured, I think the simplest way for us to, uh, to rally around this idea, for us to exercise this idea, to put it in practice, is that every single day we should say, thank you, God, for Jesus. Because with, without Jesus, like, even speaking to God the way that we get to wouldn't happen. Even confessing our sin just to God would not happen. Being made right with God like we have been through the cross, through believing in that and trusting in Jesus and only Jesus would not happen. So I think most of our prayers, before we even get into the, hey God, I need this, maybe it should start with just God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. I mean, imagine where we would be without Christ without the price being paid, without grace being given through faith and through hearing, imagine where we would be without Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. The second thing that I I think we do with this is, man, just just like the women and just like Peter, we either run and tell or we run and see. One or the other or both. Run and tell or run and see. If you were already uh, made right with God through Jesus, like this is a story that bears repeating. And not just the resurrection account, not just this part, but in its entirety, like the gospel rests in the life life of Jesus and what he's done in you and in me, like our stories. Like one way that we convey this, we run and tell, is we tell our story. We tell what God has done in us. Like start with your kids and your family and those that you work with, those that you, you hang out with, those that you, you, you play games with, whatever it is. Like the people around us need to hear this story, run and tell. But if you're not made right with God, if you don't know God, if you have yet to, to see your sin as an affront to God's holiness, confess those, turn from those, and let Jesus handle that by trusting in his life, his death, his resurrection, and knowing that he and only he can make you right with God. But before you get to run and tell, you need to run and see. And the way that works for you is you go to someone else who you know that knows Jesus and say, hey, tell me about this guy, Jesus. What did he do? The guy said that he should be treasured. I don't even know who he was. He's short and he's balding, but he said it. So if you believe that, can you tell me? I was talking about myself, by the way. Um, Can you tell me about this Jesus? And if you don't know anybody that that knows Jesus, hey, you, you can know me. You can call me. I'll meet you for coffee. I would love to. Or tea or matcha, whatever. I don't care. It doesn't even have to be liquid. I, I don't care. I'll be glad to meet you and, and just sit and tell you about this guy named Jesus. We either run and tell or we run and see one or the other. But, man, this story can't be ignored. It can't be swept away and just said, man, that's just, 
that's just religious nonsense. Like, even if you're a healthy skeptic, you should see for yourself, is this true? You should see for yourself, is this true? Is this real? Is this something I should know about? And I'll tell you from my perspective, yes, absolutely. You should. But maybe you need to run and see for yourself, hear for yourself, encounter God for yourself. Run and tell, run and see. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Beautiful passage. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with one heart, one believes and is justified. And with one mouth, one confesses and is saved. Like, believe it or not, our salvation rests on the resurrection. Like, the resurrection had not happened, Jesus wouldn't have been Lord. You say, what do you mean? Well, this is what I mean. He would have been a liar. He would have been a liar, and then he would have been found with error or sin. Like this idea, this, this beauty and this resurrection, our, our salvation hinges on this, being real, being authentic, being true. Because if it wasn't true, several chapters before, he had lied by saying, I will be handed over to the hands of sinners, crucified, and on the third day, I will rise. He would have been proven to be a liar, but he was not. He was not. We must run and tell the whole story. That it's not about just being a good enough person. It's not about just checking the boxes. It's not about giving X amount of money. It's not about giving X amount of time. It's not about using our talents and our skills frequently enough. No, it is us trusting in the life, the words, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus to make me right with God. To make you right with God. Any other version of the gospel is incomplete and it's insufficient. Insufficient. I mean, Romans, right there, Paul is telling a group of people in Rome, a lot of Greek believers, but a few intermingled Jews, he's like, look, yes, we confess Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God actually raised him from the dead. And if we do that, we will be saved. Our salvation hinges upon Jesus being Lord over our life and us believing the impossible to man, but completely doable with God. Because by the way, like that impossibility... It stretches to the impossible that God does with us, like making us right with God. A group of people that are sinful, that are in and, our, in and of ourselves completely depraved, without hope, that cannot possibly do the good that God purports. Like we can't do that without Jesus. The impossibility of the resurrection leads to the impossibility of my salvation and reconciliation to God. And it must be told or investigated, one or the other, one or the other. The third thing I think that we do with this is because of the fact that he said this was going to happen and it did, and because of all the other things that he said were going to happen and they did, it's just a realization in us, in you, in me, that Jesus can be trusted. That Jesus can be trusted. And I know you say, well, yeah, but I mean, seriously, like this is important and it's vital. Why? Because there's a lot of other things that he promised too. And if he can deliver on this, imagine what else he can deliver on. If he can deliver on, man, if he can deliver on literally conquering my sin, conquering your sin, our collective sin, and then beating death on his terms, if he can deliver on that, imagine what else he can deliver on. John 6 says that he will never throw us away. 
If he can deliver on the promise to rise from the dead, he can deliver on the promise to never toss us away, to never throw us away, to never let us go. He can be trusted. Matthew 4, come follow me, I will make you fishers of men. If he can deliver on the resurrection and conquering death, he can deliver on the fact that he says, I will use you. I will make you into something you are not. Fishers of men, I will use you. Matthew eleven twenty eight. he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Maybe you're exhausted from trying to earn it. Maybe you've tried so hard just to be a good enough person your entire life. Well, let me go ahead and give this away. It's not enough. It's not enough. The gospel doesn't say try harder. The gospel says trust completely. If he can deliver on beating death, he can deliver on giving you rest from trying so hard to be good enough. He can deliver. In John 14, he tells us that when he leaves in his place, he will send the Holy Spirit. If he can deliver on the impossible of conquering death, he can also deliver on this impossibility of planting God in us changing the very location of the temple, the very makeup of the temple of no longer bricks and mortar and wood and all of those things, but instead letting the spirit of the living God reside in the people who have trusted in the life, the death, the works, and the resurrection of Jesus. He can deliver on that. And then through that, we have a guide. We have a convictor of sin. We have an educator as to who God is and who we are. And we have a seal of our salvation. If he can deliver on the resurrection... He can deliver on that. It's trustworthy. And then earlier in John 14, he also says that he will give us an eternity with him. An eternity with him. That doesn't start the moment that we die. It starts the moment that we enter into that covenant relationship with him right there, right then, in that moment, in that place. He says, from here on, you're with me. You'll never be away from me. You'll never be apart from me. I will never let you go from now until forever. If he can deliver on the resurrection, he can deliver on eternity. I think the hardest thing maybe for us to do is to actually trust. We've been conditioned that trust is earned. We've been conditioned that it needs to be proven over and over and over the work of God in us is that he enables us to trust this Jesus, to trust his words, to trust his works, to trust his accomplishments, to trust who he is. And we must, because there is no hope without him. There is no hope without him. Not resting in you, not resting in the best book that you've read, not resting in anything. It just rests in Jesus. Today, we celebrate the fact that Jesus said that through his life, through his words, through his works and his death and his resurrection, it's finished. It's done. He's made a way. A way that can't be undone. A way that can't be taken away. A way that sometimes can't be understood. But it can be realized. And that's Jesus. After the women ran back and told the disciples what had happened, we, there's also an occurrence in there somewhere in which Mary and Jesus have kind of a one-on-one -on -one interaction. We see that, that Peter and Jesus had a one-on-one -on -one interaction. We don't have the details of that. We 
We just have it referenced in several places. Even Paul later in 1 Corinthians said that Jesus appeared solely to Cephas or, or Peter at one point. But this is what we have after all of that and after an interesting occurrence on the road to Emmaus. Uh, in verse 33, it, it picks up, uh, or verse 36, and it says, And while they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. They were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for the spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, were, while they still believed for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem here. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He said, I know that you look at me and you may not believe, but it's okay to believe. And if you believe, here's what you do. Go and tell. Start where you are. In Acts, it alludes to a little more. Go a little further. Go a little further. And go as far as you can imagine. And it says all we have to do is tell of what we've seen. Tell of what we've heard. Tell of what we've experienced. Just tell about Jesus. If Easter does nothing more than remind us of the work of Jesus. It's done enough. But today, there's also this impetus that's been placed upon us. Man, run and tell. Run and tell. You've been equipped with a story. You've been equipped with the Holy Spirit. And you've been equipped with a Jesus who's completely trustworthy to do everything that he said he would do. Run and tell. Uh, today, we, we also get to celebrate uh, through the remembrance of communion. Uh, there's a table set up behind you, and in a moment, the worship folks are going to come up and play, and, and we're going to sing a little more. Uh, but during that time, one way that we remember the life, the words, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus is through taking communion, something that seems very simple, and it is, but it's also incredibly symbolic and meaningful that we get to do it together, but as we do it together, we remember Jesus while we're here. We remember Jesus that he gave up his body on our behalf and it was broken and he spilled his blood so that our sins could be washed away if we just believe. And we remember what he did. But not only that, communion is also our means of looking forward to something that's yet to occur. The fact that he came once as he did, but he's going to come back in a completely different way and fix all of the broken pieces. Put everything back the way it should have been from the get-go and recreate what perfection should look like in us, in this world, and in creation. And we look forward to that with grateful expectations. Scripture tells us a couple things about communion. Our, our table is open so anyone is free to take communion, but Scripture uh, gives us some direction on that, that uh, we need to be uh, committed followers to Jesus. So we have seen our sin, we've chosen Jesus instead, and we've said, Jesus, I trust you to take care of this, to fix the ledger, to make me right with God so that I can know him, be known by him, and make him known. So we need to be in in good standing with Jesus. That also means that we don't need to have any sin just sitting 
festering that we're entertaining and we're letting take up residence in us. And so maybe if you're a believer and you have that stuff in you that's just sitting there, whatever it may be according to God's perfect plan, maybe before you get up and take communion, you just need to sit there and the mode for uh, repentance is pretty simple. We tell God what we've done, the sins that we've committed, and we say, God, I don't want that anymore. Would you take it away and turn from that, turn from it to Jesus? And so that's all we have to do to take communion. And today, if, if you want to, if you have children in the back uh, who are believers and you want to go get them, you can. Um, and take communion wherever you want, however you want in this building. Um, and then uh, we'll wrap up in just a few. Take as long as you need. Pray as long as you need. And, and if you need to sit and not take communion, that is completely okay. Completely okay. Uh, so let me pray, um, and then we'll worship and through communion. God, we love you. We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that his life and his words and his death and his resurrection are completely trustworthy. As unbelievable as they should be, completely trustworthy. God, I thank you for the believers that are represented in this room, those that have abandoned their sin, have chosen you instead, and God have trusted you to make them right with God. God, I thank you that we can celebrate a risen Savior today who does beat death, who does conquer sin, and who lives victoriously. God, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. As we sing and as we worship and as we take communion, I pray that we remember him well. Um, and God, I pray that the, the spirit inside of us that is yours groans and moves us to just repeat as often as possible. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Today we celebrate him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.